Our second reading this morning is from Numbers chapter 9, verses 15 through 23. Hear the word of God. On the day of the holy tent, the tent of agreement was set up. A cloud covered it. At night, the cloud over the holy tent looked like fire. The cloud stayed over the holy tent all the time. And at night, the cloud looked like fire. When the cloud moved from its place over the holy tent, the Israelites followed it. When the cloud stopped, that is the place where the Israelites camped. This is the way the Lord showed the Israelites when to move and when to stop and set up camp. While the cloud stayed over the holy tent, the people continued to camp in that same place. Sometimes the cloud would stay over the holy tent for a long time. The Israelites obeyed the Lord and did not move. Sometimes the cloud was over the holy tent for only a few days. So the people obeyed the Lord's command. They followed the cloud when it moved. Sometimes the cloud stayed only during the night, and the next morning the cloud moved. So the people gathered their things and followed it. If the cloud moved during the day or during the night, they followed it. If the cloud stayed over the holy tent for two days, a month, or a year, the people stayed at that place. They did not leave until the cloud moved. When the people rose from its place and moved, they also moved. So the people obeyed the Lord's commands. They camped when the Lord told them to, and they moved when he had told them to. They watched carefully and obeyed the Lord's commands to Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Two pieces of paper I want to draw your attention to in, in your uh, in back of your pews are these little cards. They're starting to flow into my office. I love them. Okay. I mean, I love talking to you after the service, but here's what happens if you talk to me after the service. I forget what you say. <laughs> if you write it down here, then it lands in my office, and, and uh, that's really helpful to me. So if there's any communication you need to make with me or with the office, you can just write a little note on there. You can throw it in the collection plate when it comes around. Or if during the course of the sermon you have uh, a question that arises, you can write it on there and give it to me after the service, and that way I'll, I won't lose it. Um, also, some people had asked for the scripture references in my sermons, so I've actually printed out my sermons for you. Uh, as you were coming in the door, uh, there are the texts of the sermons. You can check to see whether or not I get it right as I'm preaching it. Um, some of you will find that helpful. Okay. All right, let's pray. Father God, we are your people. We are the people that you have called out of slavery, out of darkness. You've called us into a new world, into a world of freedom, into a world of your blessing. You have called us forward in our lives. And uh, during this life of pilgrimage, you go with us. Every step of the way, you are present with us. Our lives are lived under your care and under your protection. You know our days. You know the plans that you have made for us. 
Lord, I pray that uh, as we live lives as redeemed people, that we would uh, live in trust uh, and in confidence, even if we don't know what is ahead of us. I pray that we would know that you are our good Father and that you love us and that you care for us and that you watch over us. Lord, this morning we have responded to your call on our lives. We've come to this house of worship uh, for uh, a time of public worship. We do this in response uh, to your scriptural command. Uh, And we do it in anticipation uh, that not only will we uh, have the pleasure of seeing uh, brothers and sisters, uh, but that we'll also have the pleasure of hearing a word from you this day. Lord, I pray that as uh, we proclaim the word uh, this morning, that you would speak to your people that you would speak a word that is individual, uh, that would meet uh, each person where they are in the circumstances of their life this day. Uh, Lord, you are our rock and you are our redeemer. You are the one who has loved us uh, before we loved you. Um, And we uh, thank you for the privilege of standing in your presence this day. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning I want to preach three sermons. They're all very short. Uh, First, I want to talk about the Passover and what the Passover teaches us about God's law and about God's grace. Second, I want to talk about the presence of God in the midst of his people. And third, I want to talk about how it is that we discern the will of God for our lives and how we avoid certain kinds of pagan divination that have crept into Christian culture. So three short little messages. First, let's begin with Passover. Passover is an annual commemoration of the mighty deeds of the Lord in rescuing the Israelites out of Egypt. God commanded the observance of Passover so that his people would be constantly reminded of who they are and of who God is. Who are they? Well, there are people who used to be nobodies. They were former slaves. They were rescued and redeemed by a merciful God who hears the prayers of nobodies and slaves. That's who they are. They once were not a people, but God made them into a people. They once had no land, but God gave them a land. They once had no law, but God gave them a law. Remembering who we are in God is important And this is not just for the people of God before Jesus, it's also for the people of God after Jesus. In 1 Peter 1, verses 9 and 10, we read, But you are a chosen people, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people. But now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter is speaking to a bunch of former pagans. He's talking to people who were once engaged in the worship of statues, people who were once involved in every kind of sexual perversion, people who once killed babies and owned slaves, wicked people, hell-bound people. But that's who they once were. And now everything is different because God called them out of that darkness into his light and now they're a chosen people. Now they are a holy priesthood. Now they're God's special possession. 
the contrast, the before and the after is huge. And Peter thinks it, it is important for the saints to remember the contrast. So too with the children of Israel. Remember who you were so you can appreciate who you are and do it generation after generation by keeping the Passover so you won't forget and so your children's children's children will also know your covenant identity. This is a command of God. It's not a suggestion. It's not a proposal. It's not a recommendation. It is a command, and God says if you fail to keep this command, you will lose your identity. You will be cut off from the people. You will no longer be part of Israel. That's God's law. Now, if you are anything like me, you bristle at any hint of someone else, even if it is God, telling you, what to do. Many of us are law haters. Stick up a sign that says, you can't do X, Y, and Z, and I will do X, Y, and Z, and I'm going to do it right next to the sign, and I'm going to take a selfie of me doing X, Y, and Z. Not everyone's like this. Some of you are. You hate to be told what to do. Here's the problem. If we do not obey God's law, we cut ourselves off from the things of God. Jesus said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Want to be outside of the love of Christ? Stop keeping his commandments. The Apostle Paul warns, for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. Want to feel God's wrath and fury? Need a little extra tribulation and distress in your life? Well, be selfish. Stop obeying. Stop telling the truth, stop doing what is righteous, and you will feel the wrath of God. Okay, that's about the law. Now let me talk about grace. The command comes from God to celebrate Passover at a chosen time. There's a very specific day of the year when the Passover happens, the 14th day of the first month. We don't get to choose when we celebrate Passover. Part of the regulation of Passover is its precise timing. But some people came to Moses and said, Hey, Moses, we can't celebrate Passover because we touched a dead body and now we're ceremonially unclean. As we spoke about a few weeks ago, ceremonial uncleanness has nothing to do with germs or hygiene. There are a number of things, all of them beyond our control, which can render us ceremonially unclean. And then we have to wait, and we have to go through a process to become clean again. And if we happen to touch a, body, a dead body on the 14th day of the first month, well, then we're not going to be doing Passover that year. And so Moses goes to God to inquire about this, and what God says is, well, you can do it the next month. Now notice what God does not do. God does not say, oh, never mind. 
it's not really that important anyway. God says that the people of Israel must celebrate Passover, and if you don't, you'll be cut off from the people. But God also offers a second chance for those who have a desire to keep the Passover but have a legitimate impediment in the way. There's a hilarious book on my shelf. It was published maybe 30 years ago. The title is, Yes, Lord, I Have Sinned, but I have several excellent excuses. Many of us think that we can talk our way out of the violation of God's law. How many of us are relying on the excuses that we have made up for why we did what we shouldn't do or why we didn't do what we should do? And of course, about the only person who is interested in our excuses and the only person who actually believes our excuses are ourselves, which is why, by the way, we have a tendency to withdraw from relationships and from Christian fellowship when we fall into a pattern of sin. Okay? You understand, of course, there's a difference between isolated sin, one-off sins, sins that we do and that we regret, and habitual patterns of sins. Okay? With a habitual pattern of sin, the ones that we keep repeating, those are the ones that we begin to lie to ourselves about. Those are the ones where we begin to make excuses to prove to ourselves that this sin is actually not a sin. Yes, Lord, I have sinned, but I have several excellent excuses. And when we fall into that kind of pattern, which can look like addictive behavior, what we often do is we withdraw from relationships and from Christian fellowships because Christians will call us out. Because Christians will hear our excellent excuses and say to us, hmm, that doesn't sound right to me. The reality is, while we love to make our excuses to, our ex- to ourselves, and by the way, we're always talking to ourselves inside of our head. While we love to make our excuses to ourselves, other people generally are just not interested And God, well, God sees through all of our smoke screens. So why bother? Why not just come clean? God has a law. We cut ourselves off from God's law and place ourselves under God's wrath and judgment when we don't follow that law. But God is not unreasonable, and God does make provision for those whose hearts are right, who genuinely want to obey but face certain impediments. Okay, That's sermon number one. Sermon number two, God is present in the midst of his people. One of the most familiar images that we have of the exodus and of the uh, wilderness pilgrimage is the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night that shows up, uh, by the way, even before the Israelites are across the Red Sea. We read in Exodus chapter 13, by day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. 
The pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire were visual reminders of the presence of God in the midst of the camp of the people. Think about this for a second, and you'll realize how unusual this is. If you were inventing a religion, would it be necessary for the gods that you worship to actually be present in the midst of the worshipers? Could one not worship Zeus without having Zeus leave Mount Olympus? Could one not worship Odin without having Odin leave Valhalla? And yet Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh makes a point of always being present with his people. Yahweh is the creator of heaven and earth. He is the Lord and the captain of a large army of angels, and yet Yahweh is at the same time present with his people during their pilgrimage across the wilderness. And he gave them, in this case, the special favor of allowing them to see his presence. By the way, God can be present and remain unseen. Getting to see God is an additional favor on top of having the presence of God. And I think it must have been tremendously reassuring to the Israelites to see that pillar of cloud and that pillar of fire, the power of God on display both day and night in their camp. We serve a transcendent God. We serve a God who is not part of of this universe. He is not contained in this universe. He does not live in houses made by human hands, and yet at the same time, God is imminent. He dwells with his people. That's part of what makes them his people, and the same is true for us. God is with us. God is not far off Jesus is present wherever two or more are gathered in his name. The Holy Spirit is present in this room this morning. God is here among his people. When we call to God, we don't have to shout because he's far off, hidden in some cloud, hidden on a mountain out beyond the stars. God is present with his people, and so we can whisper to him. God is present with his people And that means he knows our lives. Before the Israelites reach the promised land, the word of the Lord comes to them saying, the Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. This means that God is with his people during the pilgrimage. God is with his people before they get to the promised land. He is with them there in the wilderness. Just before Jesus ascends into heaven, he says to his disciples, I am with you always to the very end of the age, which means that Jesus is with us now in this present time, which is our time of pilgrimage, which is the time before we reach the new Jerusalem. God is present with us now. And what happens at the end of the age? Well, that's when we finally cross over the Jordan and we enter into the promised land. When we come to the end of the age, when we cross over the Jordan and enter into the promised land, obviously we're going to be in the presence of God in some kind of special way. 
We read in Revelations chapter 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is among his people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That's what's to come. But in the moment that we're living in now during this pilgrimage, before we enter the promised land, God is present with us now. And God, of course, will be present with us once we're in the promised land. Now, the difference between God's presence with us now and God's presence with us in the promised land is that we now walk by faith and then we will walk by sight. During our pilgrimage, we see as in a mirror darkly, but the time is coming when we will see God face to face and all of the impediments and all of the darkness will be removed. While we wait for that time, we need to remember that we still are in the presence of God even if his presence is veiled to us during this time. Hell is the absence of God. We can avoid God's company, by the way. It is possible to push God's presence out of our lives. And God honors the choice that we make in this life for all of eternity. The free choice of those who spend eternity in hell is the choice to be away from God. It is the presence of God in our lives that makes us the people of God. If God is absent, we're damned. But when God calls a people to himself, whether the ancient Israelites coming out of slavery in Egypt or we saints today living and rescued from our own slavery to sin and death, when God calls a people to himself, he lives with those people. He's present with those who are his own. God is with us. That's what it means to be the people of God. Sermon number two. Sermon number three. How do we discern God's will for our lives and avoid certain kinds of pagan divination that have crept into Christian culture? Let me begin by defining divination. Divination is the magical or religious practice of seeking information about what is hidden in the past or the present or the future. Horoscopes are a form of divination. Astrologers cast a horoscope by looking at the patterns in the stars and in the planets, and they claim special insight into what is coming in the future. And based on that insight, they give advice about how someone should conduct their affairs. Augury is the interpretation of certain events that are understood to be omens about the future. Those omens could be dreams. It could be patterns in the clouds. It could be unusual coincidences. It could be the tea leaves or birds flying in the air. There are palm readers who examine the lines in your hand. 
and make predictions about the future. There are tarot card readers who shuffle a deck and interpret how the cards fall. In ancient times, they had this practice of cutting open a sheep and they would examine the internal organs of the sheep that would give them some information about the future. All of those are kinds of divination. Now, of course, Christians are not involved in astrology or augury or palm reading or tarot cards. All of those things are explicitly forbidden in Scripture. But many Christians do something that looks very similar to divination, trying to read ordinary circumstances or natural events as if they were supernatural signs from God about the future or about what God wants me to do with my life. I was thinking about a mission trip to the Marshall Islands in the South Pacific. And then, out of the blue, I get a Facebook message from my old friend, Marshall McGuire. I think that's a sign from God. I've been thinking about what kind of work I should go into after I graduate, and today... I read in my Daily Bread devotional about the walls of Jericho coming down. I think God is telling me to go into construction demolition. Many Christians are engaged in pious but misguided divination. And I think we need to be very careful. The desire to know the future is natural enough. Knowing the future gives me a competitive advantage over other people. If you knew what the stock market was going to do tomorrow, you would very quickly be a billionaire. Knowing the future also relieves my anxiety. If I know when something is going to happen, I don't have to worry about it. Or if I'm making a big decision in my life, it sure would be nice to know what outcomes different options would produce. Should I pick behind what's behind door number one, door number two, or door number three? Don't all of us want to know what's behind those doors before we choose? And yet, that's not how the world works. I don't know about you, but sometimes I wish God would come back with his pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. It would be great if all we had to do was follow the pillar. It would be nice if God gave huge, unambiguous, cosmic signs to show us what to do and where to turn. People often come to me as a pastor to have a private conversation because they say they are trying to discern God's will for their lives. They want to know what God wants them to do. Typically, they, have, they ask this kind of question when there's a big decision on the horizon. I've been offered a new job with more money, but it means moving to another state. What does God want me to do? Doctors are suggesting surgery but can't guarantee the outcome. Should I risk it? Sometimes they come to me not when there's a decision to be made, but when circumstances have become uncomfortable in their lives and it seems like some change needs to be made because the status quo isn't so good. I want to get married, but I haven't found anyone I like who is also a Christian. Is God telling me to date non-Christians? 
I'm working as hard as I can, but I'm not getting ahead. Does God expect me to be poor? Life is full of perplexities. Some decisions are hard to make. God, of course, knows all of these things. Does it make sense to ask God, what should I do, and expect him to answer us? Is it all right to ask, what is God's will or plan in this circumstance? I want you to think for a moment about how you understand or how you imagine God's will or plan for your life. Jeremiah 29, uh, God speaks to the Israelites, and they're currently living in exile in Babylon. These are our conquered people. The ones who weren't killed were taken away as slaves. And God speaks to this remnant, and he says to them, I know the plans I have for you. And then God gives them some clues about what that plan is going to be. He doesn't tell them everything, but he tells them enough to encourage them to remind them that he's taking care of them and to give them a bit of hope during a dark time. Do you think of God having a plan for you and your life? And if you do, do you think, what do you think he includes in that plan? Did he, for example, include what country you would be born in? Did he include who your parents are? Did he plan what schools you're going to attend? Did he plan who you would marry? Did he plan what line of work you would go into? Are those parts of God's plan? Or how about what friends you will choose? Or what investments you will make? or what movies you will go to, or what church you will join, or who your pastor is, or what book of the Bible your pastor will be preaching through. Do you think those are parts of God's plan? Do you think of God's plan as covering every moment of every day, or do you think of God only being focused on the really big stuff? I used to meet regularly with a pastor from a nearby church that is no longer a church. And I remember him saying, do you really think God cares about our sex lives? Doesn't he have bigger stuff to worry about? What do you think? Do you think God's will and plan involves only major things? Like who will win the war in Ukraine? Or does it also involve minor things like, will this Russian missile hit this farmhouse or will it fall harmlessly to the ground? At what level is God's involvement in this world and in our lives? Obviously, some events are more important than others, but really important events, in fact, are the culmination of lots of little events And I think it's hard to separate the two. Think about your decision to follow Jesus. It's the most important event in your life. That decision made the difference between heaven and hell. But now think about the many little things that went into preparing that decision. Small circumstances, little conversations, small kindnesses that you experienced along the way. Our anxiety tends to focus 
on the big things and we tend to neglect the small things. We want God to reveal to us some secrets about the grand design that he has for our lives, but we're less interested in what he has to say about the ordinary decisions that we have to make a hundred times a day. Here's my point. It is out of those little things that we have control over, it is out of the little things that the big things in life are formed. I've been the pastor of this church almost 18 years. That's a big thing. But those 18 years have been one Sunday at a time, one home visit at a time, one prayer meeting at a time, and your life is the same. And regarding the little things of our lives, here God is very clear. All too often I see well-meaning Christians trying to interpret the events of their lives as if they were signs from God, as if by some act of arcane divination they can discern the hidden mind of God. People look for some message from God in their dreams or in unusual circumstances or in some inner sense that they have, either peace or unease. Well, maybe the dream was just the pizza that you ate before you went to bed. Maybe the unusual circumstance is just a coincidence. Maybe my inner sense, whether it be peace or unease, is not the standard by which I need to be figuring out the mind of God. My inner sense tells me more about my mind than about the mind of God. What we have plenty of in Scripture, and all of you know this stuff, and don't really need any extra training at all, what we have plenty of in Scripture is moral teaching, instruction about righteousness. And it's pretty simple. Tell the truth. Don't steal. Keep the Sabbath. Don't mess around with false gods. Don't covet other people's stuff. Don't commit adultery. Don't kill people. Honor your father and mother. It's stuff that we all already know. Now, maybe that sounds like those instructions won't solve your problems. They won't give you the decision uh, that you need to make about whether or not to keep this job or to move to another city. But you can ask that question against those criteria. Is it an honest job? Is it a job that will enhance your marriage? Is it a job that honors God and honors your parents? Well then, there's nothing in Scripture that says no to that option. If you have two job options, you may be choosing between two goods, which is nice. And then you choose the good that is better, and that's a matter of human wisdom. Or it could be a matter of a coin toss. Let me offer you an analogy that's been helpful to me. A snowflake is perfectly ordered, perfectly structured, and perfectly beautiful. And yet, the overall pattern of any individual snowflake is distinct from every other snowflake. Each snowflake is made not with a pre-existing plan of what its final shape will be. Each snowflake is made one molecule of water at a time. When that molecule freezes, it behaves according to a very simple rule. 
And that rule, think of it as the law of God, that rule is repeated over and over again, adding more and more frozen molecules to the growing flake. Circumstances change, wind, temperature, humidity change, but each time the same rule is repeated, and as a result, every snowflake is perfect, every snowflake is beautiful, and every snowflake is unique. I think that might be an image for our lives. We have the basic law of God. We all know it. The circumstances of life are always changing. But if we apply the simple law of God over and over in each moment, the result will be perfect and it will be beautiful and it will be distinct. Could we have known the exact shape of our snowflake at the beginning of our descent from the cloud? No. Should that worry me? Absolutely not. Because I know that when I obey God's law in the small things, day by day, that the overall pattern of my life will be perfectly blessed and perfectly beautiful. St. Augustine, in a sermon on 1 John 4, 4 through 12, it's a passage that gives us the command, dear friends, let us love one another. St. Augustine writes, once for all then, a short precept is giving, given to you. Love and do whatever you will. If you hold your peace, hold your peace through love. If you cry out, cry out through love. If you correct your brother, correct him in love. If you spare a chastisement, through love do you spare. Let the root of love be within, and from this root can nothing spring but what is good. I think all of us have this desire to walk by sight and not by faith. I think there are times when we're asking for God to reveal to us what in God's own will and God's plan, God has decided would not be revealed to us. God has given us the law of how to behave in little uh, everyday interactions. The promise of God's uh, law is that if we obey God's law, it will be well for us. We don't have to worry about the outcome. We need to follow God in the instructions that he's given to us and trust him with where he's going to lead us. Let us pray. Father God, we honor you and we adore you and we thank you for uh, your protection of those people uh, wandering in the wilderness. We thank you that you had given them your law and you had shown them your presence. Lord, I pray that you would give us too the confidence that we need uh, during our pilgrim journey. I pray that we would trust you to have our lives in your hand. I pray that you would give us faithfulness to follow your law and to be obedient to you. I pray that you would uh, enable us to trust you with the outcomes of our decisions that we take. You are our Lord. You are our Redeemer. And we worship you this day. Amen.